there is a real trend right now in routine manual extraction of the placenta. I've done some research on this and it absolutely is causing more harm than good. Let's say you had sex on Monday and you ovulate on Thursday. You're not going to conceive on Monday because you haven't ovulated yet, but the sperm can live for five days. So that can throw your date off, right? So it's not about the day you had sex. It's about the day you ovulated. I'm just thinking of the old days when women were like out in the fields doing their work or in the kitchen baking their pies. And they were like, oh, I think it's been a while since I got my period. And then suddenly they're gaining weight. And it's like, oh, when is your baby due? Oh, we think in spring. Right. They 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 could hear this conversation like, ah, but you had sex Monday, but did you ovulate on Monday? Do we overthink it? A hundred percent. The problem with the due date is the provider. That's really the problem. That's the problem. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. I'm so glad you reminded me to hit the record button. That would be no fun. Our toughest episode, right down the drain. If we forgot to push that button, welcome to our final the buttons Q&A. are very important. <laughs> buttons are very important, <laughs> um, as any three-year-old will tell you. Um, it's our last Q&A for the year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. This is testament Heaven's to heaven's sakes. Oh my goodness. How okay. much people want to listen to podcasts in between Christmas and New Year's, because that's when this episode is coming out. Um, before we start, Trisha, I wanted to read an email from a woman who wrote to us after hearing our Rogam episode, and I really appreciated this email, so I wanted to share it. What? Does that mean this completes three years of the podcast? <laughs> I knew your mind was elsewhere. Yes. This, we have, we are complete, well, think about it, 190-something episodes. That's yeah, a three lot. years. We've been doing this for three years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We've been, it's been public for three years. We've been working on it for three and a half. Right. Yeah. We're going into our three full years of episodes. We are going into our fourth season. Very exciting. Anyway, I want to read this email from a listener named Kelsey. I thought this was really um, worth worth sharing. And I really appreciated that she wrote this. So she wrote, hi, hi, Cynthia and Trisha. I'm reaching out about your recent episode with the mama who was RH negative and her story. I'm also an RH negative mom with an RH positive husband. My children both are RH positive. I received Rogam with my first during pregnancy and after birth. With my second, I questioned it a bit more and did a lot of research. And in the end, I decided not to receive Rogam during my pregnancy or after my birth. I will be getting blood work soon to see if I was sensitized during my second pregnancy. One big concerning factor for me with the Rogam, especially this time around, was the fact that it is a blood product from multiple people meaning one dose is composed of plasma from more than one person. I dug and dug and could not find any information that factually stated if Rogam has plasma from donors who have received the COVID shot. The reason I'm reaching out is first to thank you for shining light on this topic as it is very, very under-researched and families have to really dig to find the information. My midwife and I had to really work together to gather the facts. 
I'm also reaching out as I would love to see a follow-up episode focusing more on the risk-benefit analysis of Rogam itself. This is a product that is administered across the board to any woman who is RH negative. There is such little information, so of course there are even less informed consent conversations happening. I had an ER visit during my pregnancy because of some light spotting, and the first thing the doctor said, not asked, was, all right, so you will be getting Rogam. He did not even ask my husband's blood type. If my husband's blood type was RH negative and I just said, okay, I would have received the shot for no reason at all. A really great resource on this topic is Dr. Sarah Wickham. She talks a lot about it and wrote the book, Anti-D Explained. As an RH pregnant mama, it was definitely a very tough decision that caused a lot of stress and worry because of the little and sometimes conflicting information out there. If I were pregnant now and in the decision-making process and listened to your episode, I may have decided to take the Rogam out of fear. Of course, you need to hear both sides in order to make an informed decision, which is why I'd love to hear a discussion where that outcome was different from the one in the episode. Thank you so much for what you do, Kelsey. Fair point. It's worth talking about. And, but worth- it is interesting, this doctor, they are sometimes routinely recommending Rogam for women who are RH negative, it, totally regardless of whether the husband is RH positive, right. it's a non-issue if, if, he, if right. he's negative. That shouldn't happen. But the reason that people don't talk so much about the risks of getting Rogram is because the risks of a baby getting sensitized in a future pregnancy are so severe and because the incidence is so high. I asked her that and she said there's conflicting information on that too. You know what? It's very possible that there isn't good information on that because everybody gets Rogram. So there's so few cases of people who don't get it. How would we really be able to know that? And nobody's studying it except who she said, Sarah Wickham has written a book on it. And Sarah, if you're happen to be listening to this episode, um, (laughs) we are trying to get you on the podcast. Um, I haven't heard back. She's Um, very hard to read. She has, she's she's hard to read. Very hard to read. We want to talk about vitamin K. I'm sure she would. (laughs) And uh, Rogan with you. So, um, especially because um, this mom, Kelsey read Sarah's book and came to a different conclusion. Yes. So I think, I, I think that's the thing that, that nobody studies it and nobody talks about it because everybody gets it um, because that risk is h- much higher than a lot of other things that we make choices about in pregnancy. And so it just becomes a non-issue for most people. Um, and I mean, interestingly though, in the episode that we did, the program didn't work at all. That's true. So, nonetheless, mothers should be informed that it is a blood product and what the ingredients are in it and what the risks of getting the vaccine or vaccine. (laughs) It's like a vaccine getting what the risks of Rogam are. And it goes beyond just risk of infection and pain and bruising at the site of injection. Yeah. All right. They're rare. They're rare, but you still have a right to know. Of course. All right, let's get started. Great. Hi guys. I have just a quick question. So I know a lot of times when your water breaks or when you think you're in labor, they kind of put you on that uh, clock. It seems like the magical number. Um, from what I've heard is kind of 24 hours and then they want to push other options. Um, just why do they do that, I guess? Is there any rhyme or reason to it or is it just more out of convenience or I don't know. I guess with my first um my water broke and I called them and they told me immediately I had to come in and they said if I didn't have her within that 24-hour mark, they were going to start intervention. So I guess I'm just curious why they do this. Thank you. Well, we've touched on this a few times before, but it's always worth mentioning again. Um, 
the 24 hour rule basically comes from the fact that 90% of women who break their water before contractions begin will spontaneously go into labor within 24 hours. So that's sort of become the cutoff that if you go beyond 24 hours, you're outside of that 90% and you're not normal. And so everybody wants you in labor by 24 hours. The risk of infection also goes up at 24 hours. So that's that's the standard of care that you induce or, or augment or get labor going at twenty four at the twenty four hour mark to prevent the risk of infection. What infection if it's not GBS? All the infections that women can get from all those unnecessary cervical exams. You mean? Yes, exactly. Well, then, so yes, you can we still can develop a fever issue. without. You can still develop a choreo um, or an infection in the uterus without having GBS for sure. Right. But it is reduced significantly if you keep everything out of the vagina. So once that bag of water is broken, now anything, any bacteria that's in your vagina, on your skin, on somebody's hands, on any device that goes inside your vagina is potentially introducing that into your body, into the amniotic fluid. And now there's potential risk of infection. And we, it's also worth mentioning that this there is there's no evidence to support speeding up labor or getting that baby out within uh, at the 24 hour mark. And Trisha's talking about that statistic related to once membranes release, but what women are facing is arriving at the hospital, and that's when the clock begins. And we have a local hospital right here in Fairfield County, Connecticut, that quote gives women 10 hours. And at 10 hours, they start pushing C-section and they want to see, as my doctor said to me, I want to see you dilate a centimeter an hour. Well, the heck with that. There's no research supporting any of that. So this is all rhetoric. Everything we're talking about is rhetoric, except the part Trisha said about infection. That's that's definitely worth knowing, but there's no good explanation. And we, we can't, we can, we can theorize, but we can't support or explain why these policies are there. They're, they're not serving women and their families. That we do know. As long as your baby's doing fine and you are not developing a fever, there is just no good reason to um, aggressively push labor. Just wait, keep waiting. It'll come. It will happen. I mean, if you're not in that first 90%, you're pretty likely in the next 12 to 24 hours to go into labor. Hi, Trisha and Cynthia. Um, My name is Regan. I am 37 weeks pregnant. I'm actually from Manitoba, Canada. I have a question for you regarding meconium. So my question about meconium came up quite early on when it came to appointments with my midwife because I was born at 42 and 4 at 7 pounds and 6 ounces. Um, so obviously, I wasn't a big baby to be born over 42 weeks. So when I was talking to my midwife about it, and she didn't bring up all the usual things that I've heard, like um, the big baby thing or the fluid thing or the pelvis. She brought up that the baby would start inhaling meconium the longer it goes over 42 weeks. The other thing is, is after 42 weeks, I don't have the option of birthing out of a hospital anymore. So it would be free birth or in a hospital. And she would not be happy at all if I went over 42 weeks. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you guys if um, going over 42 weeks of meconium is as big a deal as she was making it sound to be, or yeah, if there's not, if it's not as big a deal. Thank you. So the risk with meconium later in pregnancy after 42 weeks is that um, the baby one is more likely to pass meconium. 
and two, that your fluid is likely to be less. And that combination increases the risk of meconium aspiration syndrome, which is very severe. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but you put those two things together and the risk goes up. So that's the concern in babies born at 42 weeks and beyond have a higher incidence of meconium aspiration. So in your opinion, does normally when women are being pressured into induction at 42 weeks, it's a lot of talk around stillbirth. Are you saying you think it's reasonable justification to to routinely induce a woman at 42 weeks just because of the concern of meconium? No, I'm just saying that the risk goes up. Right. Um, but no, I'm not saying routine induction at all. I don't know the percentage right off the top of my head of meconium aspiration syndrome at 42 weeks, but um, I think we'd be hearing a lot more pressure about that if it was greater than the risk of stillbirth, which is you know mostly what we hear. Usually when you go that late in pregnancy, you are doing some sort of surveillance of the baby, like a biophysical profile. And if on a biophysical profile, it was determined that you had very low fluid, then maybe you would consider those risks differently. According to the International Journal of Pediatrics, it says that meconium aspiration syndrome is a rare complication that affects 0.18% of full-term newborns. 0.18%, a fraction of 1%. That's 18 per 10,000. So we're talking about a risk that's still half of what the stillbirth risk is at 42 weeks. So yes, the risk goes up, but again, we have to always look at what the actual numbers are and not just the relative risk. Hi, ladies. Um, I've been battling the flu for the last couple of weeks, and I am just curious. Thankfully, in that time, I've only had a fever, a low-grade fever once and then again today. But I'm just curious how it's hard to find information on fevers um, in third trimester and how concerned I should be uh, and what I should be doing. If anything, I tend to just let my body do what it does naturally, and I don't usually uh, take anything to lower my fevers. But I also want to make sure baby is safe. My perspective on this is you're not seeing much about this because it really isn't as big a deal as as it's led as we're all led to believe. There's a lot of rhetoric around this, but your body heats up to kill the virus. It's not affecting your baby. You get the flu. It feels miserable. It feels crummy. Your baby is just fine in there. We're led to be afraid of getting the flu. Some people say the flu is worse than getting the vaccine, but in fact, there's a lot of um, controversy around the vaccine. When you get the flu, you've got to take care of yourself. I believe in letting the fever do the work as long as you're able to sleep and rest. And if you're staying very well hydrated and hopefully taking really good supplements, but the baby is sitting there collecting antibodies, which is a beautiful thing. And when the baby is born, your baby's going to have all those antibodies. So that's what's happening for your baby while you're, while you're laid up in bed suffering, your baby is strengthening. I would only just add the one thing is that if you develop a really high fever that can cause increased heart rate or tachycardia, and it might be worth taking a fever reducer at that point. I mean, I'm all for letting the the body burn it up and and ride it out. But in pregnancy, sometimes we want to just have a little lower threshold. Um, And you can take time. You can take Tylenol. What would be the uh, threshold in your mind? Like 102 and a half, 103? 
Yeah, probably. But it, you know, it depends on how long it's prolonged to. If it's just a short interval of time that it's high, then fine. But if you're really enduring a high fever for a long period of time, it a little dose of fever reducer is probably better than not. Hey, ladies. Um, my name is Shelby, and I am six months pregnant with my first. Um, but I guess I kind of have two questions, and feel free to only answer one. I know that's a lot. Um, but my first question is around the delivering of the placenta and kind of this idea of assisting it by my OB. Um, she mentioned it was routine, and I know routine is not necessarily a good word. Um, and she's been really open to all of the other things that I've proposed and the differences I wanted to do. And so I guess my question is, is like, is there really any benefit to the light assistance of the delivering of the placenta, um, are there downsides? And then my other question is around uh, the, I guess it's called a hemlock, where they insert the IV. Um, she seems to really want to use one of those. She's not pushing IV, but I feel like it's one step from IV, and I'm really concerned that that means that other types of interventions might be pushed um, with that kind of being a gateway intervention. I really appreciate your thoughts on those. Thanks. Yeah, this is really important stuff here. Well, they're both great questions. So I think we have to answer both of them. Absolutely. So as far as the delivery of the placenta, it's sort of funny because back when I was in school, which is now... Uh, 18 years ago? 18. Yeah, 18. Um, active management of third stage of labor or active management of the placenta was then... That was what we were being taught. That's clamping the cord giving the Pitocin cord traction to birth the placenta. Now it's sort of like, okay, well, everybody knows that delayed cord clamping, clamping is better. So we'll let that part of active management go, but we still have to do something. It's like they can't quite let go of just letting the placenta be physiologically born. So what she's asking is, is, is a little bit of traction or a little bit of active management of the placenta necessary? It's not. No, it's <laughs> it just is not. not. And what concerns me is, and I've been talking about this more and more in my hypnobirthing classes, there is a real trend right now in routine manual extraction of the placenta. And I find this to be absolutely appalling. Like the, to, to insert the whole hand slash arm, lower arm into a woman and to pull out the placenta. I can't believe this is happening at the rate it's happening. And I've done some research on this and it absolutely is causing more harm than good. There is a much higher risk of infection, a much higher rate of postpartum hemorrhage, possible genital um, tract trauma. So when we're having these, if you're very flexible with a doctor who quote, likes to do this stuff, um, I'd be careful. I would really err on the side of saying, I don't want assistance birthing my placenta. My body is going to expel the placenta. Now, obviously, if something comes up, you would change your mind, as is your right, and you could get assistance. But I think you're in a better position to draw kind of a hard line around that so they don't start messing with you. It's not supported by evidence. Um, Cochrane did research on this. Um, it also increases postpartum endometriosis. It's really problematic. So we keep looking for ways to try to reduce postpartum hemorrhage. Postpartum hemorrhage is the leading cause of maternal death worldwide, right? It's the, it's the riskiest part of birth. So it's really hard 
for providers to not feel like they have to do something to ensure that that placenta is born as swiftly and safely as possible. When really the right thing to do is not intervene during the labor and oversaturate all the um, oxytocin receptors so that the body can do its job postpartum and effectively contract and stop the bleeding. Um, so we try all these different things to see if we can do better at, at birthing the placenta faster because the longer the placenta sits there, the feeling is that the risk of postpartum hemorrhage is higher every minute we wait. So there's this sense of urgency to get it done. The research is currently saying that there's a higher risk if the placenta doesn't count, come out within an hour. And it normally comes out quite quickly, but I just want everyone to understand the, the common sense behind it so that it makes a little bit of sense to you if you're listening. When a placenta comes out naturally on its own, it's attached. Think about it in ta- attached to the inside of your body through open capillaries. This is how blood is getting transmitted, right? It's blood. This is how everything is getting transmitted from the mother to the baby. It comes out on its own only because those capillaries pinch and seal off, which is how that placenta detaches itself. It doesn't rip itself out with these open capillaries where all the bleeding is happening. That is what happens when they reach in there, never mind what a miserable experience that is for any human being. When they reach in there and take it out, all those capillaries are exposed and open. And that's why that procedure is linked to higher rates of postpartum hemorrhage. Because your body has to produce a massive amount of oxytocin when that placenta detaches in order to contract the uterus down effectively enough to seal off all of those capillaries. So this is a major reason why it's so critically important that after your baby is born, you do not lose your focus. Your birth is not over. You have to stay in your birth zone so that your body can stay in that safe, quiet, calm space that we were just in while we give birth to the baby. We have to remain there through the birth of the placenta. And so often after the baby is born, it's kind of like we snap out of it. The lights go on, the people come in, the baby's taken away. How do you expect your body to stay in that zone when all that excitement and action is happening around you? So then the placenta takes longer to be born because you're not staying in that safe nest to allow the oxytocin to do its job. And a quick word about HEPLOX. Um, they are not linked to safer birth outcomes. I do believe it's the first step in unnecessary interventions. They can get one in, in an emergency situation if they had to. Even when women need emergency C-sections, it's so often a part of their story that they're sitting around waiting for the surgeon to show up or they're sitting around waiting for the paperwork to sign. Um, and there's a lot of pressure around this, but HEPLOX, never mind IVs. We're just talking HEPLOX, which is attached to nothing. It's just a catheter in your vein. Um, these aren't linked to safer outcomes at all. You do not need one. If you want to give birth with a catheter in your vein, go for it. But this is not linked to better outcomes. It's just, in my opinion, a really unnecessary way to tether you. And you're going to be much more likely to receive intervention if you have it. It's your personal decision, but there is no evidence to support this. Um, Trisha, I have to tell you, someone in my class the other day said that she was told she would need to have a HEPLOC and she was pushing back a little bit. And the provider said to her, if we don't give you a HEPLOC in labor, your veins will collapse. Because we're not going to feed you or hydrate you. So 
<laughs> Have you ever heard that? Well, that's what happens when you get dehydrated. So collapse, but what does collapse mean? What it are they means talking they, about? It means they, they go, they go, you know how, when you are looking for a vein, you want it to be protruding and bulging so you can get a cat, an IV in there. And when you're dehydrated, they get really flat and they're hard to access. So that's what they're saying, but that's silly. Well, Maybe the rhetoric terrified her. She thought, oh my gosh, this sounds like something I have to do. Right. Like, like, or well, like my veins are going to collapse and I'm not going to be able to breathe anymore, or it's going to cause something horrible to happen within my body. That's just all not true. Right. Next. Hey there. I've been listening to your guys' podcast for the past several weeks of my pregnancy, several months actually, and I've been so grateful for it. I do have a question. I've heard some women avoid dairy or other foods while breastfeeding. This includes alcohol due to the way their baby reacts. Can you explain why someone would avoid certain possible allergens and or how you would know how to avoid them? Thanks, guys. Basically, my training and understanding about allergens in breast milk is that whatever the mother is highly sensitive to food-wise, so she has an allergy to dairy, wheat, corn, soy, whatever it is, she's more likely to uh, produce antigens when she consumes those foods. And the antigen itself that her body produces can sometimes leak through into the milk ducts and be transferred to the baby. It's more likely to happen in moms who have abundant milk supply or oversupply or lots of engorgement. It's like the the ducts get a little bit more leaky under pressure. So it's very common with oversupply to see babies have allergy type reactions in breastfeeding, which can be colic, reflux, rashes, eczema, excessive fussiness, that kind of thing. The most common culprits are dairy, soy, corn, wheat. So it's really common for moms who have any complaint about their babies for their pediatrician to say, you should cut dairy out of your diet. That's like the go-to, get rid of dairy. And dairy is the number one culprit. But I like to take a step back and, you know, there could be some underlying breastfeeding issue that the pediatrician's not picking up on picking up on, it's not always a food allergy. It might be a hyperlactation issue. Um, And if you're not sensitive, particularly to dairy, you've never noticed you have an issue at all with it. It's not likely that your baby is. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw-cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com and cherry on top, you guys can use code DOWNTOBIRTH at checkout to get 10% off your order.
10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. Hi, Cynthia and Trisha. Um, long story short, I had a beautiful VBAC birth in June, and it was only detected two weeks ago that I actually had a cervical laceration. Um, I had a slight postpartum hemorrhage that was quickly controlled with the use of Pitocin, and my provider is a, an osteopathic doctor, and she said that she would have to look into the implications and whether to repair or not. I currently don't know if we want another child. Um, that is up for debate. But I'm wondering, like, what are the implications? Um, what are the risks of having a cervical laceration? Um, I know it has been linked to incompetent cervix, which I know we don't love that term, but I, you know, there's some information out there about whether you should have a cesarean before you go into labor. So I was just curious what your thoughts are. Of course, I'm going to see what my provider says. But in the meantime, I would love to know your thoughts. Okay. So the risk here with having a cervical laceration is in a subsequent pregnancy, there is, would be the consideration of um, the you know, preterm labor, preterm birth, because the cervix would not be staying closed and tight. However, this does not pan out in the evidence. Um, there was a study done back in 2016, which showed that there was no difference in preterm birth rates for women who had cervical lacerations in a prior pregnancy, and that the management of care of her pregnancy should not be altered in any way. So she doesn't necessarily, she certainly doesn't need a C-section. She doesn't necessarily need progesterone or a cerclage, which are the two things that would be most likely offered to prevent, to keep the cervix closed and prevent it from early dilation. 
Yep. And I reached out to Tara Gibson and she said, sometimes a pelvic floor physical therapist can help with lacerations. So it just depends hmm. on the laceration on the laceration, but they, but they absolutely do work on these. The cervix heals just like any other part of the body, just like the uterus, it heals. And there's no such thing as an incompetent cervix. That's just terrible language. Hi, ladies. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the use of a Doppler, particularly to check the heartbeat in the first trimester around 10 to 12 weeks. I'd prefer to use a cetoscope, but I know it won't pick up the heartbeat that early. And I'm a first-time mom, so I just want to hear the heartbeat and have some confirmation that everything's going okay. But I am concerned about radiation and want to limit that. So just wondering if you can share your thoughts and anything about the safety of using a Doppler. Thanks. Oh, if only every provider knew how to use a fetoscope. I know. What is the big deal? This, this aversion to it. It's such a lovely means of getting the heart rate. And you, and you hear the heart rate actually in a natural way. It sounds like a real heartbeat and not this amplified sound that comes through the Doppler. However, yes, it is harder to get it earlier on. We can certainly get um, confirmation of heartbeat much earlier on with a Doppler or even earlier with ultrasound. But yeah, there's some risk of exposure. What that is exactly, you know, nobody's talking about it as being a real major problem, but um, it's not benign. Yeah, more and more research is coming out on that now. Um, The point is, I mean, Doppler is less than ultrasound intrauterine ultrasound is the most. These higher tech ultrasounds now have more, the duration that you're exposing the baby has more. And we're not saying this to distress anyone because virtually everyone is getting ultrasounds, but there is good reason to um, not get any ultrasounds unless you really need to or want to. I mean, the anatomy scan makes sense for a lot of people, but after that, just to keep checking on the baby with ultrasound, you really can turn those down. And if you don't, Um, There's research to show if you're getting unnecessary third trimester ultrasounds, that is linked to dramatically different birth outcomes. And we'll cover that in one of our upcoming live streams on Patreon, Tricia, because there's really good meta-analysis to show um, the bad um, information that comes from that. So Doppler is, you know, you can view it as a, it is less exposure than an ultrasound. You can view it as a necessary evil. You can choose to get it and not let it bother you at all because the risks are still debatable. or you just decline. You can decline those as well. Right. You don't have, you definitely don't have to have that. I think your point about duration is really important. Um, Many people are just going to want confirmation of the heartbeat. It only takes a second. You hear it beat a couple of times and you can turn that thing off. You don't need to sit and listen to it for a minute. And that's a Doppler. Doppler. Yeah. Yep. Or even with ultrasound. Yeah. The moment they see it, you can be like, that's it. I'm good. Done. And the provider is happy because they get to bill for that one. <laughs> right. 10 seconds. Everybody's happy. All right, next. Hello, ladies. Um, I had a question about vitamin D supplements for um, breastfed babies. I feel like I'm getting conflicting information where my breast milk is everything my baby needs, but I also need to be supplementing with vitamin D. So I was just wondering your thoughts about it. All right. Thank you. So yes, your breast milk should have everything your baby needs. But the issue is that human adults are not always as nutritionally replete as we should be. Many of us are deficient because we eat highly processed foods and our soil is 
um, deficient in many vitamins and minerals. And we certainly don't get enough outdoor exposure. So most of us have low vitamin D. Therefore, we can't expect the breast milk to be sufficient in vitamin D. So the recommendation is that babies receive 400 IUs daily of vitamin D via dropper if they're exclusively breastfed. Formula-fed babies are supplemented in formula with vitamin D. Or if a mother takes, um, I believe it's 5,000, 5,000 IUs daily of vitamin D, then her body should have enough vitamin D to sufficiently provide vitamin D for the baby via the breast milk. All right, let's get to quickies. Okay. Um, How can I combat early pregnancy headaches? Other than sleep and water? Eat more frequently. Don't let your blood sugar get low. That's the main trigger of headaches in early pregnancy is low blood sugar. And that happens really easily. So eat at least every two to three hours, smaller meals more often. How do I talk to my OB about aging placentas not being a thing? You don't need to talk to your OB about this. Their mind is already made up. If they were interested in this, they'd be listening to our podcast episodes with Rachel Reed, or they'd be doing the research on their own. So the question isn't how to convince them. They have to convince you of things. You just have to do your your research, make up your mind, and then manage your doctor. That's all you have to do. Create your boundaries and manage your doctor. You're not there to convince anyone of anything. It's actually the reverse. Next. (laughs) That's all perfect. All right. Um, Is 26 weeks too late to switch from a birth center to a home birth midwife? Oh, of course not. Not at all. all. That's early. Switch. Go for it. I've had couples switch from one provider to the next after 40 weeks. Wow. They're coming to mind right now. In fact, one of them messaged me today on Instagram. Wow. wow, Yeah. Yeah. So no, you got plenty of time. Is it a red flag to spend eight plus hours in a birth center after a car crash and only see the midwife one time? What? That sounds concerning. Um, What? So she was involved in a car crash went to the midwife's office to have the baby checked. I'm sure I'm just assuming this is the story and waited, was there for eight hours to be monitored only seen by the midwife one time. I would say, yeah, that's concerning because that just indicates that they are over booked understaffed. I mean, that's a long time to leave you. I mean, maybe she was hooked up to some kind of monitor and there really wasn't much to be done though. And maybe It's not the nicest, but maybe it's not negligent care either because there was probably like a nurse watching the monitor or something. What do you, yeah, you still think you'd be seen by your midwife more than once in eight hours. A hug or a stroke of the head, something, please. Something, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a precautionary sign. Mm. I mean, the, the only question is how did it feel really? Right. And has, have you felt that way again since It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like if you give birth with like a doctor or midwife and you feel like you love them so much and you feel like they cared about you so much and they see you six weeks later and they're like, you had a boy, right? You're like, what? Right. (laughs) You you haven't been thinking of me and my baby every day. Yeah. That's (laughs) these little moments can really sting. Okay. Are little bumps on my newborn's face normal? Very likely. Yes. I mean, newborn skin is so full of little bumps and color discolorations and rashes are so common in newborns. Their skin is very sensitive. So absolutely. And by three weeks of age, 
don't forget that newborn acne is a real thing. Yeah. Usually clears by five weeks. And they always say, don't schedule your newborn photos between three and five weeks (laughs) because it happens to all of them. How do your boobs change as you get closer to delivery? They don't actually change that much. They can get a little fuller. They change throughout pregnancy. They can get a little fuller by the end. Yeah. They a little bit. I mean, they, they sort of change throughout pregnancy. Your nipples get darker, your breasts get fuller, things become more sensitive, but there isn't like this massive change right before delivery. Right. There is on the fourth day when your milk comes in. That is massive. That is a massive change. <laughs> um, can water birth increase the risk of urinary tract infections? No, ma'am. And people will tell you that it can, or people will tell you that it increases the risk of infection overall, and it does not. So don't buy that. If you don't sleep train, will the baby eventually sleep the right number of hours? Yes, without a doubt. Yeah, by college, they'll be sleeping all the time. (laughs) Just wait till they're teenagers. They're exhausted. (laughs) They'll get plenty of sleep. Yeah. I mean, sleep training though, there's an aversion to the word training and I don't love it either, but like developing good sleep habits with a baby, um, can serve you and your baby really well. It's not just a function of how many hours they get, but how much restful sleep you're all getting. Um, anyway, yeah, it's a hard question to answer. Honestly, I don't know what to say to that. I don't think you have to sleep train. If you're having major sleep difficulties and something feels really abnormal, then you could look into um, some sleep support. Yes. But you don't have to train them in order to get them to sleep the right number of hours. Okay. What are your thoughts on cold plunging for detoxing six weeks postpartum? I am breastfeeding as well. That's bold. It's great for the immune system. It's great, but how on earth is that practical? Where are you going to do a cold plunge? Uh, maybe she has a cold, cold plunge. Pool. Maybe she does. What maybe do you think of that? In front of her house. Um, I think that if it feels right to her and her body feels ready for that, it's similar to like returning to exercise. When you feel ready, go s- start slowly. Don't s- try to sit in a cold pool for five minutes. Maybe you do 10 seconds. You build up to 30 seconds. You build up to a minute. As long as it feels okay to your body, it's fine. It's not going to hurt anything. Would you do it? And I wouldn't do it under any circumstance. No, I, I would, I would <laughs> like to. I, try to. I try to make the water in the shower cold sometimes. I've started doing that. Mm. I finish every shower with a cold. cold oh, I start it cold. I can't finish cold. Oh, no, you have to do it the other way around. No. It's starting at cold is miserable, but it no, finishing hot, is miserable. Because no, then, because you're hot then, and then the cold actually feels okay. But then you finish the shower and you're shivering, whereas the other way you end up nice and toasty warm. I get so cold so easily. You know that yeah. about me. Yeah. But when I do a cold finish to my shower, I am never cold when I get out. Not at all. Wow. I feel so invigorated. Oh, wow. It's super healthy. Try it that way. All right. Switch my water doesn't get that cold. It's like my best opportunity uh, is that's really part of the problem. It doesn't get come to my house. Oh my gosh. I'm sure your house is <laughs> comes from hundreds of feet down in yeah, the ground. Yeah, but it's so cold. Ours doesn't get that cold. 
actually it's not hundreds of feet down the ground. It's not that cold, but because it sits in the pipes on the surface, it is really cold mm-hmm. now. Are we done? That's it. All right. It. So you know what we need to Rep. say? My bedtime. We need to say happy new year. Oh my gosh. We need to say happy, healthy, successful, joyful, spectacular, fulfilling, beautiful new year and 2023. May all your dreams come true in 2023 and bring on season four. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. Hey there to my two favorite East Coast birth ladies. It's Lee calling you from Kauai, Hawaii, where this evening and most evenings, I am incredibly grateful for the fact that our night skies here are so clear. There is no ambient light, and the stars are always so special. Blessings to you, and much, much thanks for all you do. Aloha.